Gone. Check, check. Hey, there we go. There we go. Good morning. Welcome, everyone, to Just Human number 198. Sorry, I have been uh, away. Had returned from um, Arizona immediately to, back to parenting and had just all sorts of stuff going on with my kids. And namely, my toddler was sick on Wednesday through Friday. And, um, yeah, I, I, I've been taking care of him playing super dad and, uh, it wasn't all that hard. Don't give me too much credit. Um, but I've missed doing this show and because I've missed doing this show, I have a large stack of stuff that I threw into bookmarked folders in preparation for doing a show last Wednesday and Friday. Um, and things have just continued, continue to pile up. So I'm going to Excuse me, I'm going to bounce around some news that's as old as two weeks ago, I think. Um, but I just want to get to it. And I just want to present it on my show and give some comments on it. Some of it is stuff I've made comments on elsewhere because I've made appearances on either Badland shows or at the Arizona event or whatever. But there's, I am saturated with material that I could I could present today. And there's a few of them that I picked out that I really want to make sure I hit, and then we'll see what we have time for after that. Um, so welcome. Good morning to you. I think it's going to be a great week. It is Monday. Um, Hunter Biden is in court today for his um, child custody hearing thing, um, which is kind of interesting. Seems like he's a jerk of a dad. Surprise, surprise. Um, but who knows? Who knows? It's Sometimes it's impossible to tell with such things who actually the bad guy is, you know, with family court type stuff. It gets kind of messy, but the way Hunter is portrayed in the media, you would think that he ain't too good. Um, first story I want to get to is one that we mentioned last night on Defected. I saw some people in the in the chat uh, saying that they watched Defected last night or were catching up on it or um, partway through it, whatever, or they fell asleep because Burning Bright and I are kind of boring. Um, we did a presentation where we were talking about the CIA and how the CIA is... Um, they keep coming up in the news and we mentioned several stories. I think we mentioned, uh, the Epstein and we mentioned, um, Morel and, um, nine 11, um, Nord streams. So there was four things, right? Well, the show ended last night and I went back to prepping for this morning's show and just organizing some things. And I immediately found, two more stories that had to do with the CIA that I completely forgotten. And we should have included last night on defected. <clears throat> so let me grab those real quick. Cause it's just kind of, kind of fun. Let me, this one and this one. Yeah. Kind of going out of order of stuff I was going to present, but it's worth it. It ties on to defected last night. And I might as well segue into this. So one of the stories I forgot to mention last night while we we're talking, this is from April. Well, it was published on the 26th of April. Mystery of a former CIA legend going foreign agent for Ukraine. And this story, yes, it's from the Daily Beast. Yes, I am fully aware of what the Daily Beast is. But this story is about how this CIA agent or officer, Bob Baer, um, who used to work for CIA's director of operations um, around Lebanon and Iraq, 
um, and wrote a, mem- a memoir in 2003 inspired by Siriana, that movie that had Clooney and Matt Damon in it. This guy, Bob Bear, registered as a foreign agent for Ukraine in March. And according to filings of DOJ, he he's working to, quote, help Ukraine navigate through arms purchases. So, <laughs> quote, what I'm trying to do right now is help the Air Force with various equipment, with drones, with MiGs, aviation, things like that. I think the Russians need to be stopped before they go any farther. And this guy is just confirming what Ukraine is, this swampy country that the CIA has had its hands in for years and years and years. And this guy's going to gun run for them and acquire weapons for Ukraine. Uh, Basically, he's just on the up and up. He registered as a foreign agent for the swamp and uh, is making sure the swamp is supplied with arms. And it's kind of like... It makes me laugh because, well, of course, CIA officers are helping run guns and weapons in Ukraine and munitions and aircraft and whatever else they can get their hands on. What you want to bet he's trying to buy a bunch of stuff from Afghanistan and <laughs> ship it to Ukraine so the Ukrainians can fight the Russians with it. Um, anyway, that there was this story and then another one which this is a thread I'm going to go ahead and present from at the Anders Paul on Twitter, AKA Eric Carmela's dirty whistle. This article is from the Los Angeles that he's uh, screenshotting here. And it says, Holy crap. Ex CIA director, James Woolsey used his CIA ties to help launder millions from fringe Mormon sect to Turkey by claiming funds were going to CIA projects. This is crazy, and what he did is in retaliation for Flynn getting Turkey Project, he spread rumors about Flynn kidnapping up. Now, like, yes, this is, <laughs> you, heard, you heard that right. Check this out. Oh, come on and load. Come on. Come on, wake up. The internet needs caffeine too. Okay, this is from April 14th, 2023. So two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Fallout from decade-long $1 billion biofuel scam could decimate polygamous sect. What a headline. The winding scheme sent an LA gas titan and a family of Mormons to prison last week while raising questions about the CIA. It turns out CIA director or former CIA director, James Woolsey, major swamp creature, whose name came up repeatedly last week in a Utah federal courtroom during a series of sentencing hearings connecting to a Byzantine, Turkey, $511 million scheme run by members of a polygamist Mormon group tied to the Armenian underworld may have found himself in handcuffs on money laundering charges if he, quote, wasn't suffering from dementia, sources tell L.A. Mag. Using the codename Grandpa, Woolsey was connected to the fundamentalist Utah-based Mormon sect via polygamous engineer Jacob Kingston, who was sentenced last week, so that would be early April, to 18 years in federal prison for his role in orchestrating the scheme. 
Kingston, 38, testified that he laundered roughly $140 million stolen from the U.S. Treasury in Turkey with the help of a reputed CIA asset, Turkish biopharma billionaire Sezgin Baron Korkmaz. Kingston met Korkmaz via his former partner in the scam, L.A. gas station giant Levon Termindazayan, a.k.a. Lev Derman a man prosecutors call the boss of the Armenian Mafia and who is better known in the underworld circles by his nickname, The Lion, because of course. The Mormon and the mobster... Oh, gosh. The Mormon and the mobster, prosecutors say, used Korkmaz to help them purchase the Mardan Palace Luxury Hotel in Turkey. The airliner, Borajet, a waterfront via in Istanbul, and a super yacht, Kristen the Queen Anne. The overseas spending spree was all paid for by unearthed subsidies paid out in a complex international scheme run out of Kingston Washaki Renewable Energy, located in a North Utah cattle ranch owned by the order. The sect, which has been called a racist blood cult by the Southern Poverty Law Center, well, that doesn't mean much to us because we know who the Southern Poverty Law Center is, but they sound like they're probably not good people, uh, this particular sect, used it to apply for lucrative green energy tax credits. But Kingston believed their monies he was sending to Korkmaz in Turkey, quote, was being used to fund CIA operations with Kurdish groups. His lawyer, Mark Agnifilo, or Agnifo, Agnifilo, told U.S. District Court Justice Jill Parrish last week, quote, there is so much complexity here. The attorney also detailed how Jacob believed he was paying for an umbrella of protection from a cabal of crooked cops and dirty federal agents three of whom have now been convicted of selling their badges and top secret security clearances to the Armenian underworld figures. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, E.H. Kyle. Good morning. Yeah. This is like something out of a Tom Clancy book (laughs) or (laughs) Tom Clancy on mushrooms. Jason says Um, the crime is so massive. So epic. Hundreds of millions are going to Turkey Jacob believed that some of it, not all, but but some of it was sanctioned by the U.S. government and the CIA, and the money is going to business entities in Turkey to fund the CIA. There's so much backstory, and that backstory directly involves Woolsey, the CIA agency asset and the transnational crime figure, some, something the judge called, quote, a million different rabbit trails and all kinds of unsavory characters. Now, Woolsey is swamp. Like, Woolsey is Clinton swamp. Like, this guy is bad, bad news. And what the Anders Paul picked out here was that Woolsey, he seems to have been responsible for spreading rumors about Flynn. And Flynn was lobbying for Turkey. Y'all may remember this, that Flynn had some lobbying effort with Turkey. And you may remember that there was this, remember this story we got a while back? This may connect to this too. And um, the Anders Paul picked it out. Remember a while back we had that story about one eye. Remember that Biden used one eye to tip him off China, blah, blah, blah. Like Hunter had this mole inside the FBI, went by one eye. And lots of people speculate it was probably Louis Free, which for good reason they would speculate that because there are some connections between Louis Free and the Bidens. There's some donations that were made and some emails that he appears on. And then Louis Free also has like this thing with his eye. 
Um, you could see how he get that nickname. But I pointed out some of the problems in that story. There's a lot of red flags in it. There are red flags in this story that were very concerning. And um, namely, that the source for it is this guy, who is what? CIA. CIA. This guy is CIA and Mossad and apparently was running arms and he's been detained. And um, right down here, it tells you this is where this is where it gets. Uh, you can tell that. You need to be super sus of this guy right down here. Quote, Luft is well connected to intelligence circles in D.C. where he runs a think tank, the Institute for Analysis of Global Security, with former CIA director James Woolsey. That is such a massive red flag that I actually don't believe this story. I give it zero credibility. I'm not sure that it's wrong, but for now, I ain't buying it. Wouldn't buy it for a dollar. Well, that guy left his partners with James Woolsey. And he used to spread these rumors about Flynn. After September 20th meeting, Miller said she and Woolsey were in a better position than Flynn to influence decision makers about Gullen's alleged role in the coup, according to Alptekin. And two other familiars with the discussion. Let me go back right here. Let's go to this thread. This is from December 27th, 2018. So it's a bit old. Who is James Woolsey? Who is the man at the center of allegations that General Mike Flynn was planning to kidnap Muslim cleric Fatula Gulen? and return him to Turkey. That was my original question. I was vaguely aware of the name James Woolsey. I knew he was CIA director once, seen him interviewed a couple times on cable news. That was the sum of my knowledge, so I started digging and kept digging and digging and digging, and what I found was hard to believe. This man who looks like your great-uncle Fred is the living, breathing embodiment of the military-industrial complex. Woolsey's story is the story of the war party over the last 20 years. I select certain names. I selected certain names, locations, organizations, and scenarios that oddly appear in both the run-up to the Iraq war and Spygate. The information is so voluminous that I can't expect anyone to read it all at once, so his story will be presented in parts. Hopefully this thread will be a resource for others. Due to my limited knowledge of Woolsey, my search began without any preconceived expectations. I tried to let truth be my guide. What I learned is that James Woolsey takes a very different approach to the truth. Robert James Woolsey was born in Oklahoma, the son of conservative Democratic parents. He was smart. He attended Stanford University as an undergraduate, Oxford, and then was a Rhodes Scholar, and later received his law degree from Yale. He was, a socially, liber he was socially liberal as a young man, involved in both the civil rights and anti-war movements. As he matured, his, pol his politics moderated. Woolsey says he's, he's been a Scoop Jackson, Joe Lieberman Democrat all of his life. Henry Scoop Jackson represented the state of Washington for over 50 years on the Capitol, and he was a typical New Deal liberal in the 40s and 50s. As the anti-war faction of the Democrat Party grew in the late 60s in opposition to the Vietnam War, Jackson became the leader of the hawkish wing of the party. He was dubbed the Senator from Boeing due to his consistent support 
for increased military spending. Not all liberal hawks remained Democrats. Those who left to join the Republican Party became the first generation of neoconservatives. For the purpose of this discussion, a liberal hawk slash neoconservative is a proponent of an idealistic, moralizing, uncompromising, and interventionist foreign policy. Jackson's nemesis was Henry Kissinger, the sober, cynical realist. The liberal hawks neocons loathed Kissinger's detente with the Soviet Union. They viewed detente as appeasement to dictators. After McGovern's crushing defeat in 1972, Jackson, along with other party hawks, formed the Coalition for a Democratic Majority. Members included James Woolsey and Irving Kristol. That would be Bill Kristol's dad. Woolsey spent the 70s and 80s in various positions in the Pentagon, including arms control negotiator, negotiator, general counsel to the Senate Armed Services Committee, and the Undersecretary of the Navy. In 92, Bill Clinton selected Woolsey to be his CIA director. David Halberstam writes in his book, War in Time of Peace, that Woolsey's appointment was a concession to conservative Democrats. Clinton never embraced Woolsey, a Reagan Democrat. According to Halberstam, Woolsey's lack of access, Woolsey's lack of access of James Woolsey was legendary. He simply could not get near the president. Woolsey's tenure as the head of the CIA was short-lived. He resigned in 92 and endorsed Clinton's opponent, Bob Dole, in 96. And after leaving the government, Woolsey joined the law firm Shea and Gardner. The firm was a registered agent for the Iraqi National Congress, run by exiled Iraqi businessman and convicted fraudster Ahmed Chalabi. In 98, Woolsey signed a letter from a D.C. think tank, the Project for the New American Century, urging President Clinton to invade Iraq and remove Saddam Hussein. Other signatories included Bill Kristol, Paul Wolfowitz, Donald Rumsfeld, Richard Pearl, and Vin Weber. Oh, he left off Dick Cheney. There's Dick Cheney right there. In 2000, a Middle East scholar named Lori uh, Milroy published Study of Revenge, Saddam Hussein's Unfinished War Against America. Atop the book's cover is an endorsement from Woolsey, who says it's a brilliant and brave book. Milroy made the case that Saddam Hussein was behind numerous terrorist attacks against U.S. targets, including the truck bombs at the World Trade Center in 93 and the Federal Building in Oklahoma City in 95, as well as the Kobar Tower bombings in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I don't think they were. I don't, I don't, I don't think Saddam Hussein was behind those. Milroy's imagination is quite fanciful. This blurb from Milroy's book is worth quoting at length. Quote, Milroy traces the actions of Ramzi Youssef, the mastermind behind the bombing, who remained at large until a botched attempt to down a dozen U.S. planes two years later. In reviewing Rousseff's phone calls before the bombing, false passports and escape patterns, Milroy finds ties to Iraq at every turn. Could it be that he was acting alone out of his own hatred for America, or was the Iraqi government and Saddam Hussein in particular supporting Youssef in what was one of the most ambitious terror attacks on U.S. soil? Woolsey alerted Bush administration officials to her book and even helped her create a brief on Youssef. On January 2nd, 2001, a break-in occurred at the Niger Embassy in Rome. 
The items reported taken were of minimal value. Little did anyone know at the time that burglary would rival Watergate as the most important robbery in American history. Among the items taken were official Niger document or government stamps, stationery, and letterhead. Soon after the 9-11 attacks, the CIA received a report from SISMI, the Italian military intelligence, that an Iraqi official attempted to acquire uranium, yellowcake, from Niger. The report contained no documentation and was dismissed as amateurish by the CIA. Vice President Dick Cheney was not satisfied, so the CIA sent retired Ambassador Joseph Wilson to Niger to investigate. Wilson reported that he found no evidence that such a sale occurred. One day after 9-11, Woolsey told journalist James Fallow, quote, no matter who proved to be responsible for this attack, the solution had to include removing Saddam Hussein because he was so likely to be involved next time. Just going to let that one marinate for a moment. The day after 9-11, Woolsey told journalist James Fallow, quote, no matter who proved to be responsible for this attack, the solution had to include removing Saddam Hussein because he was so likely to be involved next time. Two days after 9-11, Clifford May launched the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Woolsey is listed as a founding member. He would later be named chairman. FDD was a leading advocate for the invasion of Iraq. Also, FDD was very pissed off that we pulled out of Afghanistan. Um, we'll talk about Afghanistan here in a little bit. But I remember as I was doing my research on the F on Doha agreement and on us pulling out of Afghanistan, people from FDD kept coming up over and over and over again. And they were pissed that America and NATO weren't going to be in Afghanistan anymore. And it struck me as a bit odd. <laughs> All right. On September 19th, 2001, the Defense Policy Board, a bipartisan group of national security experts who advised the Pentagon, met for 19 hours to discuss what actions to take in the aftermath of 9-11. Woolsey was on the board, along with such prominent names as Henry Kissinger, Richard Pearl, General John, Jack Sheehan, Newt, Gingr Newt Gingrich, Dan Quayle, and several former high-ranking officials at the Pentagon. The New York Times reported that this group was nicknamed the Wolfowitz Cabal after Paul Wolfowitz, the Deputy Secretary of Defense at the time. The group excluded Secretary of State Colin Powell, who was opposed to their proposal to invade Iraq and oust Saddam. I want everybody to note that. So, we have, when we look back and we think about people and what choices they made and what they did in the early 2000s in the, after, in the aftermath of 9-11, um, we have a tendency to like judge them from our, the hindsight that we have now, right. To look back and to judge them based on what we know now, not on what they knew then. And I just want to point out that Colin Powell, who passed away last year, I believe it was, 
was among those who opposed invading Iraq. But he also had a job to do as Secretary of State, and he did that job and ended up making the case for it, right? And we tend to, we tend to judge him on that instead of judging him on what his instincts were at the beginning. Something, that st- something that's always stood out to me about Colin Powell, and I used to really disparage him and deride him um, because I viewed him as this, um, I viewed him as a weak conservative and like a faux Republican or something. And now I find myself rethinking some of that because it seems like he was just not a neocon. And uh, Felix Sater had some really nice words to say about Colin Powell when he passed. And it's given me a lot of pause and it's made me think, did Con Inc., such as it existed back then, did they make sure to paint Colin Powell in a negative way so that we would think of him as part of the enemy, part of Democrats, whatever, when in actuality he was just not a neocon and didn't want to get the U.S. in endless wars. But he was also Secretary of State, so he had to represent the administration. He had to represent the Bush and Cheney and them and their what their policies were. So he had to go up there and give the speeches that he did and the presentations they did, but his first instincts were, let's not go into Iraq. It's interesting to look back and think about that. Back to the thread. Seymour Hirsch claims it was Woolsey and Pearl who took the lead in promoting the invasion of Iraq. From Chain of Command, page 169, in late 2001, Pearl and Woolsey inspired a surge of articles and column calling for the extension of the, the Afghan war into Iraq. Their arguments provide an early glimpse of what would become a national debate over the imminence of the threat from Iraq. In October 2001, an article appeared in the New York Times about Iraqi links to WMDs and terrorism. It's stunning how much fake news it contains, all from, quote, intelligent sources and, quote, senior administration officials. Man, I remember when we used to read that and believe every word of it. Well, many of us did anyway. According to the New York Times, the ringleader of the terrorists, Mohammed Atta, who was a very bad guy, met with an Iraqi intelligence officer in Prague in April of 2001. The Times quotes James Woolsey's response to the discovery. Quote, the Czech confirmation seems to me very important, said Woolsey, former director of CIA, who has become a strong advocate outside government for a rigorous investigation of Iraq's possible role in the terror against the United States. It is yet another lead that points toward Iraqi involvement in some sort of terrorism against the United States that ought to be followed up vigorously. The Prague connection was in the original draft of Colin Powell's pre-war speech before the UN. Powell demanded it be taken out. He knew the intelligence was suspect. Woolsey, however, was not troubled by such doubts, or he was intentionally spreading disinformation. Another tie between Saddam and terrorism in the article is Saba Kodada, a former captain in the Iraqi army who immigrated to the U.S. Kodada claims to have worked at a camp where non-Iraqi Arabs trained in terrorist tactics, including hijacking of airplanes. What the New York Times article doesn't tell readers is that James Woolsey was was representing Kodada 
In fact, he represented numerous Iraqi National Congress exiles pro bono. Bit of a conflict there. It would later be revealed that U.S. intelligence agencies did not believe Kodata's story. The INC ceased contact with him, but the damage was already done. His story was part of the narrative. And thanks to the authority of James Woolsey and the establishment press. I specifically remember citing this to liberal friends and uh, libertarians and just anybody who was opposed to the Iraq war back then. I remember citing this, this story about how there were terrorists training to hijack airplanes in Iraq. Training in Iraq to hijack airplanes. And it was pure disinformation. As far as the alleged meeting between Mohammed Atta and the Iraqi intel agent, turns out there was confusion over two different Atta's. The presence of an Iraqi agent in Prague appears to have been no more than a rumor. In the same month, an op-ed appeared in the Wall Street Journal written by Woolsey. It repeats the allegations of Iraqi agents in Prague and terrorist training camps in Iraq. In addition, in addition, Woolsey claims that Saddam Hussein attempted to assassinate the elder Bush and insinuates that Iraq was behind the anthrax attacks of 2001. I remember all of that. In the weeks after 9-11, Wolfowitz sent Woolsey to England to investigate possible links between Saddam and the 9-11 hijackers. James Woolsey is the absolute last person to send on a fact-finding mission. I suspect his true purpose was to persuade the British that Saddam Hussein posed an imminent threat and that an invasion of Iraq was unavoidable. On October 28, 2001, Rupert Murdoch's London Times published the most outlandish article yet. Quote, Hijacker given anthrax flask by Iraqi agent. The reporter, Dan McCrory, wrote that according to his sources, Otto was handed a flask of anthrax in Prague by an Iraqi contact. He then flew to Newark, New Jersey, and sent letters laced with anthrax to politicians and broadcasters. McRory also claimed that while in Rome, Ada contacted an Iraqi intelligence agent who was a professor at a school for diplomats. After claiming there were more contacts with Iraqi agents and agents of Osama bin Laden, McRory finishes the article with James Woolsey's hunt for al-Qaeda operatives in England. One has to wonder if Woolsey is not the same, is not the source of most, if not all, of the information in the article. It's hard to find, but here's a link. The newspaper, I'm sure, would prefer it stay buried for eternity. There's a copy of it here on Free Republic. Three months after 9-11, Paladin Capital, a private equity firm, was founded. The company offers substantial promise for Homeland Security investment. Woolsey is listed as a principal. Paladin Capital is still going strong. Here's a good rundown of the company's current activities. I'm going to skip that. On December 20th, 2001, an interview with Woolsey appears on the website Salon. Woolsey is the Bush administration's, quote, unofficial point man for a possible war with Iraq. And that certainly does seem to be the case, doesn't it? The author of the Salon piece even states that Woolsey belongs to, quote, the shadow government. From the article, Woolsey has not held government office since leaving the CIA in 95, but his, this consummate Beltway insider 
has worked effectively over the years in Washington's shadow government. A conservative Democrat, or a liberal conservative, depending on where you stand, Woolsey has served on every commission and board that matters in the world of defense and national security, such as the Defense Policy Board and the Rumsfeld Commission on Missile Defense. He is widely respected in a town riven by spiteful feuds. When Milroy's book was reprinted in 2002, Woolsey added another glowing endorsement. Quote, after September 11th, many, including myself, believe that the attacks may be the result of a partnership between the terrorist and a state with a sophisticated intelligence service and a program of biological warfare. If this proves to be true and Iraq is shown to be the terrorist partners, there is no reason for anyone to ask, why didn't someone warn us? Because Lori Milroy did. Woolsey joined defense contractor Booz Allen Hamilton as vice president in 2002. Swamp. Booz Allen Hamilton. On September 24, 2002, the British government issued a dossier, the September dossier, claiming Iraq had, quote, sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. The British had received the same report from SISMI the CIA had received but the British government pushed the claim despite doubts about its authenticity. The next month, an Italian reporter turned over documents given to her by an unnamed source to the American embassy in Rome. The papers were photocopies of a document in official Niger government letterhead, allegedly approving the sale of yellow cake to, yellow cake to Iraq. When the reporter attempted to verify, verify the documents herself, which included a trip to Niger, she could not. When the CIA got hold of the documents, quote, they knew it was a fraud. It was useless, writes Seymour Hirsch. In November 2002, Bush's deputy national security advisor, Stephen Hadley, a partner of Woolsey's at Shea and Gardner, told an associate, Bruce Jackson, quote, they were going to war and were struggling with the rationale. And for Jackson to set something up. Jackson, who also happened to be the director of strategic planning at Lockheed Martin, formed the committee for the liberation of Iraq. Woolsey was named the board of director, named to the board of directors along with Richard Pearl. The committee was the leading proponent of regime change. Despite the objections of numerous U.S. intel officials, the charge that Saddam attempted to acquire yellow cake became an administration talking point. The accusation was included in Bush's 2000. 2003 State of the Union speech. According to David Ignatius, oh my gosh, David Korn, oh, CIA Director George Tenet called Richard Dearlove, head of British intelligence, and asked permission to use British intelligence in Colin Powell's speech before the UN. Talk about three terrible, like, well, four. Four terrible people. Um. <laughs> On February 3rd, 2003, the British government released another dossier to the press of the Organization of Iraq's security apparatus and its attempts to conceal weapons of mass destruction. These documents would come to be known as the Dodgy Dossier. If you include the word dossier, people, at least in the media, believe it, you know, or in government. That fancy word dossier gets tied on there and it becomes intelligence. Most of the 19 pages of the dossier were lifted straight from an article that appeared in the academic journal, quote, Middle East Review of International Affairs, 
Despite rep- reprinting this article nearly word for word, the British government did not cite the author's work. They never contacted him at all. The rest of the dossier was composed of plagiarized material from two articles in Jane's Intelligence Review. When minor changes were made to the material, in every case it was in order to bolster the argument for Saddam possessing a potentially dangerous WMD arsenal, these changes were made without the author's permission. All the information in the dossier was passed off as a product of British intelligence. And man, that reminds me of the Steele dossier. In late February 2003, Niger documents finally landed in the hands of Jacques Boat, head of the UN Iraq Nuclear Verification Office. After reviewing the documents with a team of experts, he determined they were, quote, blatant forgeries. On July 23, 2003, in a secret meeting of senior leaders in the British government, Richard Dearlove reported on his recent visit to Washington that, quote, Bush wanted to remove Saddam through military action justified by the conjunction of terrorism and WMDs, but the intelligence and the facts were being fixed around the policy. The minutes of this meeting would become known as the Downing Street Memo. Back on the side of the Atlantic, this side, the the supporters of regime change in Iraq continued their bid for control of national debate by creating an echo chamber of think tanks and committees. In January 2003, Woolsey was named chairman of Freedom House. The ever-prescient Pat Buchanan saw this drive to destabilize existing regimes as a continuation of Trotsky's permanent revolution. As the drumbeat for war continued to escalate, the Senate voted on a resolution granting President Bush the authority to enforce U.N. security resolutions regarding Iraq. John McCain, speaking in favor of the resolution, warned, quote, Saddam has developed stocks of germs and toxins in sufficient quantities to kill the entire population of the earth multiple times. He has placed weapons laden with these poisons on alert to fire at his neighbors within minutes. Appearing on ABC's Nightline, Bill Crystal said, quote, we'll be vindicated when we discover weapons of mass destruction. Mm-hmm. The invasion commenced on March 20th, 2003. On April 3rd, 2003, Woolsey told a group of students at the UCLA that the invasion of Iraq was the beginning of, quote, the Fourth World War. Not content with simply toppling Saddam, Woolsey warned that the rulers of Syria, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt should all be nervous. In 2003, the Committee on the Present Danger was revived. In its, in its previous form, the CPD fought the threat of communism. Now its mission was to fight global terrorism. Woolsey joined Senator Joe Lieberman in the initial press conference vowing, quote, the committee intends to remain active until the present danger is no longer a threat, however long that takes. The committee is no longer active. It's easy, however, to see the committee to investigate Russia as the latest incarnation of CPD. Is that morale right there? I believe it is. I believe that's, that is, that is, that's morale right there. The guy we've recently talked, there's Carl, oh my gosh, look at all these bastards. Look at Max Boot. Look at all these Leon Panetta. Oh my gosh. The committee to investigate Russia. 
Late in 2004, IDT Energy was founded in New York State. The comp, dude. Okay, I can't help. I gotta look at this. Oh, that tweet's been deleted. Damn you. Damn you, damn you. Let me look at this image. We're going to scroll for a moment. Sorry. We're going to scroll for just a moment. Where, Where is this from? <laughs> Google image search returns it as senior citizens. <laughs> oh, it just links right back to that tweet. All right, hold on just a moment. Hold on just a moment. <laughs> That's too funny. <laughs> Committee to investigate Russia. I want to see who's all who all's on this. Okay. Max Boot, James Clapper, Evelyn Farkas, General Michael Hayden, Jay Johnson. Michael Morell, Norman Ornstein, Leon Panetta, Rob Reiner, Charlie, Charles Sykes, and Clint Watts. There we go. Uh-huh. There we go. So anyway, late 2004, IET Energy was founded in the state of New York. 2005, the war in Iraq was becoming increasingly unpopular. And that's the end. Okay, that's the end. Of the, oh, no, he keeps going. Okay. Uh, it was Michael Isikoff and David Korn who wrote about Tenet. In early 2005, a group of young academics at Cambridge University formed an organization for the purpose of promoting the spread of liberal democratic values. They called themselves the Henry Jackson Society. Brendan Sims was named president. Initial British signatories in Society of State of Principles. They listed included four journalists, all from Rupert Murdoch's London Times. The most prominent British signatory was Sir Richard Dearlove. Among the society's impressive list of international signatories were Bill Crystal and James Woolsey. Other HJS signatories included uh, Bruce Jackson, John Jack Sheehan, Clifford May, and of course, Richard Pearl. Other familiar names included Robert Kagan, founder of the Project for the New American Century and husband of Victoria Newland. And Michael McFall, who would later be appointed U.S. ambassador to Russia, to Russia by Barack Obama. A Labor Party politician, David Clark, wrote an article in Guardian heralding the society's in inception. He explained that it was they were a bunch of neocon, neocons, basically, and they are. I'm scrolling through this because I spent a lot of time on it, and I want to get back to where I started. Woolsey's support for the Iraq War was stronger than ever. And he saw it as part of, quote, the long war, which, by the way, the long war is the title of an FDD publication, that group I mentioned earlier. Woolsey appeared in a 2005 documentary confronting Iraq conflict and hope, along with several other prominent neoconservatives, including Christopher Hitchens, Bernard Lewis, Victor Davis Hanson, Cliff May, Frank Gaffney, Stephen Hayes, Richard Minniter, Tim Trevin, and Jono Rosbiani. In the documentary, a work of propaganda, to be honest, Woolsey warns that the war will last for decades and require regime change in Syria and Iran. This brings us to energy, a subject of much concern to Woolsey throughout his career. He co-founded the Institute for Analysis of Global Security, IAGS, a nonprofit, th nonprofit think tank which directs attention to the strong link 
between energy and security. In September 2004, IAGS, in conjunction with several other neocon think tanks, Foundation for Defensive Democracies, Democracies Center for Security Policy, and the Hudson Institute, released an open letter to Americans urging them to reduce their demand for oil. The campaign was called Set America Free. There is Woolsey in that image. Buster Lou, thank you very much for becoming a monthly supporter. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'll clip this. I'd be happy to. Um, I'll clip it and it'll go on my uh, Clips channel, which is also on Rumble. If anybody's not following it, you can find the link for it in the description of any one of my videos on, on the main channel. Woolsey's goal was to broaden the coalition to include environmentalists and evangelicals. There's something, some, something truly absurd about attempting to unite environmentalists and Christians with a war party. Perhaps best illustrated by this bumper sticker, Bin Laden hates this car. Woolsey is fond of bragging that his Prius gets over 100 miles to the gallon. Dude, if there was like, I mean, how is this is like such a nod to environmentalism being a CIA scam and hoax for more government control and influence. I mean, you have this quintessential neocon war hawk CIA military industrial complex swamp creature promoting environmentalism. He's pro-manufacturing weapons and muni these munitions that are toxic to the environment and are going to kill hundreds of thousands. Of, it would end up killing tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. Leveling cities, destruction everywhere, environmental disasters everywhere, oil wells on fire. He's all about the military-industrial complex and endless wars. But he's also... Let's save the planet through lower emissions. In March 2007, Woolsey gave a talk at Yale University about energy security in the long war of the 21st century. His theme was the necessity of energy independence if democracies, quote, are to prevail over Islamic fascism. Here you can watch that speech or a version of it on climate change and terrorism. Woolsey gave this speech at Harvard in 2008. Even in front of a secular scientific audience, Woolsey is prone to speaking in apocalyptic terms. In 2007, the Henry Jackson Society moved its headquarters to London and the staff was professionalized. Um, let's see. Extend this thread. I have to admit, I find the authors and self of this article, I find the authors and author insufferable. Everyone they disagree with is labeled far right. Nevertheless, I can't deny the quality of the author's research. They make convincing case that over time, Henry Jackson society drifted from its original mission to creating a bipartisan coalition as more and more money from pro-Israeli donors flowed into the society's coffers. Despite the unpopularity of the Iraq war in 2007, the supporters of military intervention rallied around the presidential campaign of John McCain. McCain doubled down on the Iraq war, supporting the surge of additional U.S. troops in the conflict. He dubbed his campaign the No Surrender Tour. 
It's not often remembered today that early in his Senate career, McCain was a proponent of a measured restrained foreign policy that's hesitant to place American troops in harm's way. McCain opposed President Reagan's deployment of U.S. Marines to Lebanon as part of peacekeeping force in 83. By 97, however, McCain was a full-blown hawk. He co-sponsored the Iraq Liberation Act, committing the U.S. Committing U.S. troops to overflowing Saddam, overthrowing Saddam Hussein and funding opposition groups. The most prominent group was the INC, which was headed by James Woolsey's client, Ahmed Chalabi. McCain began to align himself with Bill Kristol and the editors of the Weekly Standard. Kristol supported McCain in the 2000 GOP primary, not George W. Bush. I remember that. I remember that Bill Kristol and National Review um, in 2008, 2007, 2008, immediately moved to endorse McCain. In fact, this is weird, but I remember being on a paper route. I believe I was delivering papers at the time. No, no, I wouldn't. I've been delivering pizzas. I remember listening to talk radio in the afternoon. And I remember the day that National Review endorsed McCain in the primaries. And I remember being gutted. <laughs> oh, that was a terrible day. McCain's, I remember I was on this, I can, I can like drive to the road I was on. Um, McCain's foreign policy advisor on his 2000 and later 2008 presidential campaign was Randy Schooneman, who drafted the Iraq Liberation Act. Schooneman was on the board of the Project for the New American Century with... Bill Crystal and James Woolsey. James Woolsey joined McCain's 2008 presidential campaign as a national security and energy advisor. Brendan Sims, the president of the Henry Jackson Society, wrote enthusiastically that McCain would beat the Democratic nominee because he would have been seen as stronger on foreign policy. It should come as no surprise that the president of the HJS would be a supporter of McCain. Henry Scoop Jackson is the political father of both McCain and Woolsey. Woolsey has never hesitated to call himself a Scoop Jackson Democrat and for McCain as a Republican, at least nominally. He could never so thoroughly identify himself with a politician from the opposition party. However, he did embrace the title of Maverick, the moderate willing to cross the aisle. Ah, oh, makes me sick. Makes me sick. All right, let me skip some of this right here because we don't need... I want to get back to the Woolsey stuff because my whole point here is I'm really trying to just like show you how bad Woolsey is. It was a fish, the Magnitsky Act. After the breakup of the Soviet Union, the tensions between the US, two U.S. countries lessened. The Jackson-Vanik Amendment became a relic of the Cold War. It was officially repealed when President Obama signed the Russia and Moldova Jackson-Vanik repeal and the Sergei Magnitsky Rule of Law Accountability Act of 2012, a.k.a. the Magnitsky Act. Bill Browder at the Henry Jackson Society. Here he is. To be continued. Did he ever continue it? Let me see. Nope. Or he it broke, whichever it was. Now, let me back up. I know that was a really long thread, but totally worth it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's the wrong button, Kyle. Okay. So back to this. We were just talking about Woolsey was recently, thanks to a separate court case in Utah, it turned out Woolsey was helping to launder money from a Mormon sect to a CIA operation in Turkey.
Also, they are running guns. Ah, open up. I need to load this. Why isn't why aren't you loading? Come on. Well, Twitter doesn't want to load that image. Okay, so Corkmaz, that guy that they were doing this deal with, made a deal, quote, between Desert Tech and the CIA, Desert Tech being an industry, a, a business, to sell guns in the Middle East. Information shared with federal investigators after the four Kingston defendants pleaded guilty and began cooperating with investigators in July 2019. The family soon began spilling the beans on Cork Maz and offered up the lion, even as they protected the order's role in the scam. Their proffers led international authorities to raid six Turkish businesses owned by Cork Maz in December 2020. At that point, Korkmaz went on the run and remained a fugitive when a grand jury in the District of Utah returned an indictment against him on 12 counts of money laundering, conspiracy, wire fraud, and obstruction. Anders Paul asked, how many people knew Woolsey's wife was lobbying for Turkey? Reuters article, new article, right? But there she is. She was a lobbyist for Turkey. And just to get real weird with it, Luft, that guy who mentioned the whole one-eye thing, is Woolsey's business partner and ties into FBI Hunter Biden. Woolsey is such an enormous figure in the intelligence world. He is the Kevin Bacon of world events. But is this one degree or seven from Woolsey? It all ties back to Israel as well. Remember that that Luft guy who I said there were red flags that article. Um, I think I already closed it. It was that it was the. Uh, where did it where did it go? I don't remember. That that article with Luff and from the New York Post, um, where he's claiming that uh Hunter had a mole inside the CIA that was called One Eye. Remember, he was he was arrested in Cyprus and being held on charges of gun running. Probably related to this. Probably related to this. Now, this says that Woolsey is off the hook because he has dementia and he's not fit for trial. I don't know. We'll see. I don't know what his state is, but. Just more CIA stuff in the news, and that brings me back around. Sorry I detoured into all of that, um, but hey, it's we're learning about how bad this swamp monster is and isn't exactly a waste of time. Um, but this guy had a feud with Michael Flynn, it seems like. Um, it seems like we know for a fact that Flynn, we know for a fact that Flynn has worked as an asset and is an Intel professional. And we know that whenever he was accused as being a Russian asset, what was actually when he went to the dinner in, in Moscow or whatever, he was actually working as one of our guys as an intelligence asset for us to gather information there. Well, Woolsey was at one time a member of Flynn's Intel group, the Flynn Intel group. And so looks kind of bad. It's kind of bad that Woolsey and Flynn were part of the same group together. But 
Flynn's an asset. So in my opinion, I think that Flynn invited Woolsey in and was gathering information on Woolsey and was mapping him out. That's I think that makes the most sense. Um, and Woolsey, it seems, did not like did not like Flynn, or at least they had a falling out. And Woolsey may be behind some of these rumors about Flynn having some kind of crazy plot to kidnap some people in Turkey. And it seems like it's retaliation because Flynn was working as a lobbyist for Turkey. And that gets into the Flynn and Kislyak call and Mike Pence and all of that stuff, which some of that stuff is pretty muddy. Woolsey. All right, that brings me to this piece, which I spent way too long on that segment, but whatever. This piece. Epstein's private calendar reveals prominent names, including CIA chief, Goldman's top lawyer. I This is from a calendar, as I was talking about last night on Defected. This is not from Epstein's Black Book. It's not from anything like that. It's from a calendar that the Wall Street Journal got a hold of, which has all of Epstein's meet or a bunch of Epstein's meetings. And I was looking to see where they got this information. Good morning, JC Bird. Thank you very much. And Happy to see you. It was great. To, it was great to hang out with you for a little bit at um, in Arizona. Where did this? Where did this go? Hold on, just a moment. This one. So I looked to see if um, there was any filing in the J.P. Morgan Chase that might have this calendar in it. I didn't see it, but there's this. There's 49 documents filed right here. Lots of stuff has been happening in this this case. And what these documents are, there's a list of them here in this filing. It's various declarations. It has Epstein's original complaint back from like 2006, police reports, interviews with uh, victims, an FBI 302 form concerning Virginia Guffrey. Um, it's got victims compensation thing. It's got Epstein's... Um, it's got various depositions. It's got Epstein's uh, deal, his um, uh, what you call his sweetheart deal that he got, non-prosecution agreement. It also has De Epstein's black book in it, but I didn't find anything in there about a calendar. I may have missed it, but I didn't see a calendar in there. I really want to see the actual documents, but what this article alleges is that Epstein had all of these meetings on his calendar with Ariana de Rothschild, William Burns, who's the current CIA director, Joshua Cooper Ramo, Noam Chomsky, Catherine Rumler, and Leon Botstein. William Burns is the current director of the CIA, and back then he was working with the State Department. Epstein and him first met, he had a meeting, or at least they had three meetings scheduled in 2014 when he was Deputy Secretary of State. They first met in Washington, and then Mr. Burns visited Epstein's townhouse in Manhattan. Catherine Rumler was White House counsel under Barack Obama, had dozens of meetings with Epstein in the years after her White House service, and before she became a top lawyer at Goldman Sachs Group in 2020. He also planned 
for her to join him on a 2015 trip to Paris and a 2017 visit to Epstein's private island in the Caribbean. Leon Botstein, the, the president of Bard College, invited Epstein, who brought a young group of female guests to the campus. Noam Chomsky, a professor, author, and political activist, was scheduled to fly with Epstein to have dinner at Epstein's Manhattan townhouse in 2015. It mentions that Epstein brought a group of young female guests to the campus to meet Leon Botstein. I have to wonder if there were any, if there's anything more to that, let's say. None of their names appear in Epstein's now public black book. None of these people's names do. And that says something. Epstein's black book contains all sorts of names of people he did business with, um, was trying to solicit what people who went on his planes, people that whatever. Some of them, it's just, you know, he did, like Donald Trump's name is in there, but we already know that Donald Trump and Epstein met a few times. Trump bought some property out from under him, which pissed Epstein off. And that Donald Trump, unlike others, was eager to help investigators out when it came to uh, busting Epstein. So we know that Trump is completely clear of the Epstein stuff, yet his name appears in the book, and it makes sense that it would appear in list of contacts. You know, we all have people in our phones or maybe in a if we keep a book of uh, contacts, but today we keep them in our phones. We all have people in our phones that like we don't actually call and have like friendships with, but we acquired their number for some service at some point for some reason. Um. So his book has names like that that don't actually fall within anything. But there's other names in there that are really sus because they appear so many times in his relations. Um, these people's names do not appear in his black book, yet they appear on his schedule as people he's meeting with, which I think tells you something. In fact, that might be the biggest tell in this story is that these people weren't in his book and I think it's because their relationships may be so important that he kept them off the book, out of his black book, because he didn't need them in that black book. You get what I'm saying? Now, none of their names appear in the book. Well, the documents show that Epstein arranged multiple meetings with each of them after he served jail time in 2008 for sex crime involving a teenage girl and was registered as a sex offender. The documents which include thousands of pages of emails and schedules from 2013 to 2017, haven't been previously reported. So I don't know where they got these, but they have, there's thousands of pages of them. The documents don't reveal the purpose of the meetings. The Wall Street Journal couldn't, couldn't verify whether every scheduled meeting actually took place. Those are important things to keep in mind. Most of those people told the journal they visited Epstein for reasons related to his wealth and connections. Several said they thought he had served his time and had rehabilitated himself. Mr. Botstein said he was trying to get Epstein to donate to his school. Mr. Chomsky said he and Epstein discussed political and academic topics. Mr. Burns met with Epstein about a decade ago as he was preparing to leave government service, meaning leave the Obama administration. 
said CIA spokeswoman Tammy Cooperman Thorpe, quote, the director did not know anything about him other than he was introduced as an expert in the financial services sector and offered general advice on transition to the private sector. They had no relationship. Right. Thank you, Music and Fiction, and good morning. Ms. Rumler had a professional relationship with Epstein in connection with her role at the law firm Latham and Watkins. They come up a lot in the swamp. Um, a lot. They were, uh, su- I think they were Sussman and Denchenko's attorneys, but I could be misremembering. But Latham and Watkins comes up a lot. A Goldman Sachs post spokesperson said Epstein introduced her to potential legal clients such as Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates. A spokeswoman for Latham and Watkins said Epstein wasn't a client of the firm. In 2006, Epstein was accused of sexually abusing girls in Florida who were as young as 14. The FBI and police investigated. Epstein reached a deal with prosecutors in 2008. He avoided federal charges and pleaded guilty to soliciting and procuring a minor for prostitution. He registered as a sex offender and served about 13 months in a work release program. Epstein's case generated waves of media coverage at the time, with publications in the U.S. and abroad reporting on the accusations. In 2006, several politicians returned donations from Epstein. Some associates moved to distance themselves from him. His biggest known client, retail billionaire Leslie Wexner, later said he cut ties in 2007. His bank, J.P. Morgan Chase, later said it closed his accounts in 2013, though some bankers continued to meet with him for years afterward. In 2015, Virginia Guffrey publicly accused Epstein of sexually abusing her and trafficking her, including two people like Prince Andrew. Andrew denies the affair and recently, last year, settled a lawsuit with Virginia Guffrey. Despite the negative press, Epstein's, Epstein's days were filled with morning to night with meetings with prominent people, the documents show. There were dinners at New York restaurants, meeting at luxury hotels, and gatherings in the offices of prominent law firms. Many appointments were held at Epstein's townhouse in Manhattan. Prosecutors alleged in 2019 that the townhouse is where Epstein sexually abused female victims for years, many underage, and that he paid some of them to recruit their friends to engage in sexual activity. After the Miami Herald reported that dozens of women said they were abused, prosecutors charged Epstein in 2019 with with sex trafficking conspiracy. He died that year, allegedly in a New York jail while awaiting trial and what the city's medical examiner said was a suicide. Thank you, medical examiner, for participating in that cover-up. Mr. Burns, 67 years old, a career diplomat and former ambassador to Russia, had meetings with Epstein in 2014 when Mr. Burns was Deputy Secretary of State, including a lunch In Washington, Epstein scheduled two evening appointments that September in 2014 with Mr. Burns. Epstein also planned for his driver to take Mr. Burns to the airport. Mr. Burns recalls being introduced in Washington by a mutual friend and meeting Epstein once briefly in New York. The director does not recall any further contact. The following month, in October 2014, Mr. Burns stepped down in his role at the State Department to serve as president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, a think tank. He ran the Carnegie Endowment until he was nominated in early 2021 to be Biden's CIA director. The documents show that Epstein appeared to know some of his guests well. 
He asked for avocado sushi rolls to be on hand when meeting Miss Rumler, according to his documents. He visited apartments she was considering buying. In October 2014, Epstein knew her travel plans and told an assistant to look into her flight, quote, see if there is first class seat, and if so, upgrade her. In 2014, Epstein called Ms. Rumler within weeks of her leaving the Obama White House. He planned a lunch in August 2014 at his townhouse with her, followed by a series of meetings to introduce her to a wider circle of acquaintances. Ms. Rumler first met Epstein after he called her to ask if she would be interested in representing Mr. Gates and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The spokesperson Spokeswoman for Mr. Gates said Epstein never worked for Mr. Gates, misrepresenting their relationship, and that Mr. Gates regrets ever meeting with him. Epstein and his staff discussed whether Ms. Romler, now 52, would be uncomfortable with the presence of young women who worked as assistants and staffers at the townhouse, the documents show. Whoa. Okay, so there was a a conversation between them, like, is it okay for Epstein to uh, bring out his underage servants or what victims? Women emailed Epstein on two occasions to ask if they should avoid the home while Miss Rumler was there. Epstein told one of the women he didn't want her around and another that it wasn't a problem. Ms. Rumler didn't see anything that would lead her to be concerned at the townhouse, a Goldman Sachs spokesperson said. Several people who visited Epstein during this time period said they noticed young women at his townhouse. One of the visitors, Helen Fisher, an anthropologist, anthropologist who studies romantic love and attachment, had lunch with Epstein in January 2016 to discuss her work. Dr. Fisher said that after the lunch, Epstein invited her to speak with his staff Quote, and then infiled, I would say, six young women, all of them good-looking, all of them young. Dr. Fisher said Epstein never funded her work. They weren't friends and didn't stay in touch. Quote, I, have, I didn't have anything to do with Jeffrey Epstein. Over the next few years, Ms. Ms. Rumler, then a partner specializing in white-collar defense at Latham & Watkins, had more than three dozen appointments with Epstein, including lunches and dinners. Quote, in the normal course, Epstein also invited her to meetings and social gatherings, introduced her to other business contacts, and made referrals. It was the same kinds of contacts and engagement she had with other contacts and clients. In 2015, she was scheduled to fly with Epstein to Paris, and in 2017, he planned to stop in St. Lucia to take her to his island home in the U.S. Virgin Islands for a day. Miss Rumler never visited this island and, quote, never accepted an invitation or opportunity to fly with Epstein anywhere, Goldman Sachs spokesperson said. In addition to her current role, this is her current role is at Goldman Sachs right now. She's co-chair of a reputational risk committee. That's rich, which monitors business and client decisions for potential damage to the bank's image. Epstein also connected Ms. Rumler with Ariana de Rothschild, who is now chief executive of the Swiss private bank Edmund de Rothschild Group. The bank hired Ms. Rumler's law firm, Latham & Watkins, after the, after the introduction. <laughs> Mrs. de Rothschild, who married into the famous banking family, had more than a dozen meetings with Epstein. He sought her help with staffing and furnishing, as well as discussed business deals with her. In September 2013, Epstein asked Mrs. de Rothschild in an email for help. 
finding a new assistant. I need a female, multilingual and organized. I'll ask around, Mrs. DeRothschild emailed back. She bought nearly a million dollars worth of auction items on Epstein's behalf in 2014 and 2015, the documents show. Mrs. DeRothschild was named chairwoman of the bank in January 2015. That October, she and Epstein negotiated a $25 million contract for Epstein's Southern Trust Company to provide, quote, risk analysis and the application and use of certain algorithms for the bank. In 2019, after Epstein was arrested, the bank said Mrs. DeRothschild never met with Epstein and it had no business links with him. I don't think that's true. The bank acknowledged to the journal that its earlier statement wasn't accurate. Oh, it said Mrs. DeRothschild met with Epstein as part of her normal duties at the bank between 2013 and 2019. Yeah. Mr. Rothschild had no, no knowledge of any of legal proceedings against Epstein, completely unaware. She feels really bad about it. One of Epstein's scheduled meetings with Mrs. De Rothschild in January 2014 included another of his regular guests, Joshua Cooper Ramo, then chief executive of Henry Kissinger's corporate consulting firm. Epstein scheduled more than a dozen meetings from 2013 to 2017 with Mr. Ramo, who at the time served on the boards of Starbucks and FedEx Corp. Epstein had special snacks on hand because he believed Mr. Ramo was vegetarian, the documents indicate. Many of Mr. Ramo's appointments with Epstein were in the evenings, typically after 5 p.m. at the townhouse. Mr. Ramo also was invited to a breakfast at the townhouse in 2013 with former Israeli Prime Minister... Ehud Barak. Okay. I saw when I saw this line in this article, like guys, how how did how did Prime Minister former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak wind up in Epstein's Manhattan townhouse? Is it because Maxwell is Mossad? Is it because this operation that Maxwell was running and that Epstein was the face of was a Mossad operation? <laughs> Cinco says by submarine. <laughs> That's not when I said how I didn't mean the the means of travel. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Ramo, who still sits on the board of FedEx and recently stepped down from Starbucks, didn't respond to request for comment. Mr. Barack also met Epstein in 2015 with Mr. Chomsky, now 94, a linguistics professor and political activist and CIA hack. I am, if you know, like I said earlier, I wouldn't buy something for a dollar. I would bet a hundred dollars that Noam Chomsky is a CIA asset. Absolutely. Mr. Chomsky said Epstein arranged the meeting with Mr. Barack for them to discuss, quote, Israel's policies with regard to Palestinian issues and the international arena. Mr. Barack said he often met with Epstein on trips to New York. Oh, really? And was introduced to people such as Mr. Ramo and Mr. Chomsky to discuss geopolitical and other topics. He often brought other interesting persons from art 
or culture, law or science, finance, diplomacy, or philanthropy. It was just all really, really interesting, guys. Epstein arranged several meetings in 2015 and 2016 with Mr. Chomsky while he was professor at MIT. When asked about his relationship with Epstein, Mr. Chomsky replied in an email, quote, First response is that it is none of your business or anyone's. Second is that I knew him and we met occasionally. In March 2015, Epstein scheduled a gathering with Mr. Chomsky and Harvard University professors Martin Nowak and other academics. Mr. Chomsky said they had several meetings at Mr. Nowak's research institute. Two months later, Epstein planned to fly with Mr. Chomsky and his wife to have dinner with them and Woody Allen and his wife, Sunyi Previn. The documents show Woody Allen, of course. That pervert is included in this thing. Quote, if there was a flight, which I doubt it, it would have been from Boston to New York, which was 30 minutes, Mr. Chomsky said. I'm unaware of the principle that requires that I inform you about an evening spent with a great artist. Epstein donated at least $850,000 to MIT between 2002 and 2017 and more than $9.1 million to Harvard from 98 to 2008. In 2021, Harvard said it was sanctioning Mr. Nowak for violating university policies in his dealings with Epstein and was shutting down a research center he ran that Epstein had funded. MIT said it was inappropriate to accept Epstein gifts and that it later donated $850,000 to nonprofits supporting survivors of sex abuse. In a 2020 interview with the Dunk Tank podcast, Mr. Chomsky said that he considered what that he considered. Wait, sorry, let me back up. Mr. Chomsky said that people he considered worse than Epstein had donated to MIT. He didn't mention any of his meetings with Epstein. Chomsky told the journal at the time that meetings, quote, what was known about Jeffrey Epstein was that he had been convicted of a crime and served a sentence. MIT said lawyers investigating its ties to Epstein didn't find that Chomsky met with Epstein on its campus or received funding from him. Harvard declined to comment. Mr. Nowak said he regretted his role in fostering connections. He didn't respond for requests to comment. Mr. Botstein, 76 of Bard, Bard College since 75, had about two dozen meetings with Epstein over four years, which were mostly at that same Manhattan townhouse. Mr. Botstein said he first visited Epstein in 2012 to thank him for unsolicited donations to the school. Epstein donated 66 laptops to documents show. We looked it, we looked him up and he was convicted. He was a convicted felon for a sex crime. He said, Bart has a large program providing education to prisoners. We believe in rehabilitation. Dude, imagine saying that. Imagine saying, yeah, I met with Epstein, but you know, I believe in rehabilitation. Mr. Botstein, also the longtime music director for the American Symphony Orchestra, invited Epstein to an opera in 2013, then a concert at college in 2016. The documents indicate Epstein planned each time to bring some of his young female assistants and arrive by helicopter. Botstein said he was expecting Epstein to support classical music causes and that the school took precautions when he visited because of his previous record. They took precautions. I mean, he arrived by helicopter with young ladies 
accompanying him. Obviously, there were precautions in place. At Epstein's home, Mr. Botstein was led to a dining room where they discussed classical music and other causes. He presented himself as a billionaire, a really, really rich person. (laughs) I'm sure he did. All right, so that article, I want you to think about something with this article. And I, I posed this question last time, defected. Who's the mark? Were these people that Epstein was scheduling these meetings with, were they targets of Epstein? And Epstein was trying to uh, get them to engage in some activity in order to gather blackmail and then have influence with them. So was Epstein targeting these people? Or were these people targeting Epstein? Or are these peers? Or a mix? Right now, I kind of think it was a mix. I think Epstein was targeting some of these people. But then I also think some of these people were peers that he was working with. And so there's like information exchange, right? So like if Barack is rep, if that Barack guy, Ehud Barack guy is representing Mossad and meeting with Epstein in his townhouse and Noam Chomsky is actually a CIA asset, like I think he is, is there an exchange of information happening between those? This maps out, and like like I said earlier, the fact that these names and this their contact information don't appear in that black book speaks speaks more than if they did. And it isn't just like one or two meetings with these people people, right? It's dozens of meetings with these people. And the the cover is, oh, it's business relationships, analysis, advice, whatever. Oh, it's just soliciting donations for a school or a program. Um, That's still influence. And I think the real question is, which of these people fit into the target? They were the mark. And which of these people are peers to Epstein and Maxwell? I need to back up because one of the people that is meant that's not mentioned in that article, but is tangentially related is the guy who's funding The E. Jean Carroll insane lawsuit against Trump, which was on trial last week and is continuing this week, Reed Hoffman, who is just toxic anti Trump and is bankrolling this crazy lady in this entire lawsuit. Um, And he's connected not he's connected to Epstein as well. That this goes back quite a quite a ways, but I um I spelled this out on the uh in a Twitter thread a while back. 
that this guy, um, it was either a Twitter thread or it was, uh, on a uh, true social. I don't remember exactly, but yeah, he is also connected to Epstein and he, um, it's, I think it's, is it in this article? It's in one of the articles I shared on some post a couple weeks ago. He, um, he also contributed $600,000 to Bean LLC, otherwise known as Fusion GPS. And he also was friends with Epstein after Epstein's conviction during the same time period we were just talking about. And he tried to help rehab, if, if I'm remember, remembering correctly, he tried to help rehab Epstein's public image. So he wasn't just like associating with him. He was trying to help Epstein uh, get over his deferred prosecution agreement. Bad dude. All right, I spent a lot of time on that stuff, and I need to move on. And uh, some other thing. I want to go back. Remember that we had that article, that smear piece about Clarence Thomas that came out? And you may remember I said we're going to learn a lot more about other justices and what they've been doing, but the left and ProPublica are seizing on the opportunity to smear uh, Justice Thomas right here at the beginning before these or as these new reporting requirements come into effect for SCOTUS. Well, sure enough, April 28th from Business Insider, Jane Roberts, who is married to Chief Justice John Roberts, made $10.3 million in commissions from elite law firms, whistleblower documents show. And what this alleges is that because of her connections to the Chief Justice, she has been getting super, super good deals from law firms who hire her to go out and try and find applicants for their law firm, find other high caliber lawyers. So powerful law firms are paying her, the, the wife of John Roberts, big money to help them find and recruit high caliber lawyers or attorneys to their law firm. Next one. Questions raised after serious omissions discovered in Kavanaugh confirmation investigation. Where is this? This is from last Friday. New questions are being raised about a GOP-authored Senate report that conclusively cleared Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh of sexual, sexual assault allegations. According to a report from The Guardian, there are serious omissions. As the Guardian notes, it prominently included an unfounded and unverified claim that one of Kavanaugh's accusers, a fellow Yale graduate named Deborah Ramirez, was likely mistaken when she alleged that Kavanaugh exposed himself to her at a dormitory party because another Yale student was allegedly known for such acts. However, as the report, report points out, it was a case of mistaken identity. Instead, suggested by a lawyer working in conjunction with Mike Davis, a lead counsel for the GOP-led uh, led committee. <clears throat> the smears are on. They are make they are doing their best to go after Supreme Court justices, starting with the more conservative ones, and to smear them in any way they can. And I'm looking at it and I'm kind of laughing because I think it's I think the press is trying to get ahead of what we're about to learn about a lot of other justices. And past justices. Everything is going to be exposed. 
Good morning, mermaid. Good to see you. All right. I mentioned this briefly on Devolution Power Hour, Power Hour last Wednesday and on Defected. This is really interesting news and it's worth saving. Worth saving this the next time someone says that our election um, systems are secure and aren't can't be hacked and that there was no hack in 2020. U.S. Cyber Command and CISA have now revealed that, in fact, there was a hack of election systems in 2020. A little-known partnership between the country's military cyber forces and homeland defenders has stymied the impact of two state-linked attacks. With so many cyber-related agencies in the U.S., it's often difficult for anyone outside of the government to understand which office is responsible for what during attack. Disclosures from Cyber Command and CISA offer a clear example of how the Pentagon-based Cyber Command and DHS and CISA cooperate during an active event. This is from Axios, and it is from April 25th of this year. During the 20, this is, uh, okay, Eric Goldstein, this is Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity, and Major General William Hartman, Chief of Command Cyber, Nation, of Command Cyber National Mission Force, CNMF, detailed two previously unknown incidents involving the agencies during a panel talk on Monday. The RSA conference, Eric Goldstein and Hartman right there. During the 2020 presidential election, CNMF discovered Iranian-linked hacking group Pioneer Kitten, very scary name, lurking on a city's infrastructure, quote, used to report the results of voting. CNMF looped in CISA, which contacted the jurisdiction, resulting in an immediate remediation of the threat. In another incident, CISA identified three federal agencies facing an intrusion campaign from foreign-based cyber criminals. CISA handed this information over to command, which weighed how it would thwart the malicious actors or hackers. The officials did not name which agencies were affected. Between the lines, CISA and Cyber Command have unique roles in these incidents. Of course, that's the Axios take. CISA acts as the liaison between private and public sector organizations. Cyber Command has the power to shut down the online infrastructure of malicious actors. And then that's their whole take, is that, oh, look, isn't this neat how these two entities uh, share responsibility for thwarting attacks? No, like the point of this story is right here. Iranian-linked hacking group in 2020 was able to get into a city's infrastructure, specifically infrastructure, quote, used to report the results of voting. So it's no longer a conspiracy theory. And this isn't the first time we've had a report like this where we've learned that there were election systems that were hacked by foreign entities. I've covered another one previously that was Iran um, as well. And those people have been indicted. 
this appears to be this would be a different one because this doesn't this information doesn't match up with the indictment that those guys got. It doesn't say what city that they did this on, but let's just like imagine a city that was in a um a district that went to that went to Biden, say Detroit or something like that. What if it was Detroit? And what if Iran was able to hack into the reporting infrastructure for votes? Then it wouldn't really matter what the paper ballots did, right? It wouldn't really matter that the paper ballots were, um, there were fake ones or there was too many, some were adjudicated to go to Biden instead of Trump, like whatever, whatever the fraud was on the ground wouldn't really matter if you had a hacking group that was able to get into the actual reporting software and change the results that were reported. You would never catch that unless you went back and did an actual audit and not a recount, but an actual audit of the vote to recount the vote and then compare it to what was reported, right? You have to do a by hand audit. But this proves that election systems are online and that they can be hacked and interfered with. Maybe the actual scanner at your local election voting place wasn't online, but at some point, there's an online component to voting. And this one was compromised. Now, they say they thwarted it and that this didn't have an effect on the 2020 election. And that's great. Like, that's good news. But were there any other incidents they haven't told us about? I wonder if this is like another little seed, another, you know, they were, they were able to tell us this much. What else is going on? And this group pioneer kitten have, um, I wonder if there's a indictment coming soon. Like if these, these guys revealing this at this panel talk, it means that they have now been authorized to detail this. So something has happened where they're, they can now talk about it. Um, this hacking group, Pioneer Kitten, also known as Parasite, UNC seven five seven, and Fox Kitten, uh, the hacking these hacking groups are uh, like they choose silly names because they're hackers. So I mean, it's not that not surprising. They they're s- supposedly funded by Iran and they engage in espionage. I would not be surprised if behind Iran is an intelligence agency who is funding them uh, vicariously or through Iran. Okay. Remember that next time somebody says our elections are not hackable, according to CISA and U.S. Cyber Command, hacks have happened. Okay, I'm going to skip that. I'm going to skip that. What time is it? Okay. All right. Afghanistan. Trump was right again. Trump told us when he signed the Doha agreement that 
the Taliban will be doing the killing for us. And from my article, which is probably my, I don't know, it might be my best article on the Afghanistan withdrawal. Um, this is from October 2021. Trump told us that the Taliban was going to be killing ISIS and other terrorists for us. And that's exactly what happened. The Taliban has been killing ISIS leaders, and most recently they killed the leader who was behind the 2021 Afghanistan airport attack in Kabul. They left 13 Americans dead and a whole bunch more actual Taliban and Afghan citizens. What I found interesting about this, besides this being a proof that, one, the Doha agreement is working and that Trump was right, um, about what the Taliban were going to do and that so far they're delivering on their promises to Trump. One of the things I found really early about this is that the U.S. was not involved in the operation whatsoever. The U.S. is not allowed to be involved with such operations, but just the admission that we weren't is a good thing. Um, but they didn't even tell the Biden administration about it. Officials learned of this guy's death in Afghanistan weeks ago, but said it had taken some time to confirm. Um, experts in the government are at high confidence that this individual was indeed the key individual responsible for the attack outside the airport on August 26, 2021. More than 100 Afghan civilians were also killed in that suicide bombing. The U.S. was not informed about the death by the Taliban. But it made the determination from its own intelligence gathering and monitoring of the ongoing threats and actors in the region. Quote, this was a Taliban operation. We didn't conduct it jointly with them or anything like that. U.S. law prohibits such cooperation and intelligence sharing. Asked why the U.S. government was certain this was the individual responsible for the bombing and how that determination was made. The official said they couldn't reveal that. Quote, they could not tell me any details of the operation, but they did state that their sources are highly trusted and they've got it from several different sources that this individual was indeed killed. Good stuff. Worth celebrating. God, the bastard deserved it. And Trump was right again. By the way, that attack, I mentioned the other night, like on devolution power or whatever about how that attack wouldn't have happened if not for the state department creating that situation in the first place where all those people were gathered up. It also wouldn't have happened if the Afghan army um, hadn't released those people from prison, the people responsible for the attack on the gate. And I don't remember if it's the guy who was this guy or if it was the actual bomber, it might've been both of them were in prison they were in a prison in Afghanistan, and when the Afghan army abandoned that prison, they let them out. Tells you what side the Afghan army was really on. All right, more good news. Pross Michelle convicted. I am super happy about this conviction. 10 counts rapper and businessman found guilty in back channel lobbying campaign to drop one MDB investigation and remove Chinese national from the United States. That Chinese national is miles Guo. 
Federal jury has convicted U.S. entertainer and businessman today for orchestrating an unregistered back-channel campaign beginning in or about 2017 to influence then-President of the United States and his Department of Justice, that would be Bush and uh, Sessions at the time, to drop the investigation of Joe Lowe, the primary individual behind the 1MDB scandal, and others for embezzlement and other offenses in connection with the international strategic and development company known as One Malaysia Development Bearhad. 1MDB, and to send a Chinese national back to China, Miles Guo, as well as conspiring to make and conceal foreign and conduit campaign contributions during the 2012 presidential election to Barack Obama. According to court documents and evidence presented at trial, Pross Michelle, 50, of Coconut Creek, Florida, conspired with Low Tech Joe, aka Joe Lo, of Malaysia. Elliot Broidy, Nikki Lum Davis, George Higginbotham, and others to engage in undisclosed lobbying campaigns as the direction of Lowe and the Vice Minister of Public Security for the People's Republic of China, respectively, to have 1MDB embezzlement investigation and forfeiture proceedings involving Lowe and others dropped, and to have a Chinese national sent back to China. They proved their case, and he was convicted on all 10 counts. Michelle also conspired with Lowe to orchestrate and conceal a foreign conduit contribution scheme in which they funneled millions of dollars of Lowe's money into Barack Obama's 2012 campaign as purportedly legitimate campaign contributions, all while concealing the true source of the money. Michelle received Lowe's money and contributed both personally and through approximately 20 straw donors. Michelle also caused a presidential joint fundraising committee and an independent expenditure committee to submit false reports to the FEC. He also personally submitted a false declaration to the FEC, conspired to commit money laundering, and make false statements to financial institutions related to the foreign influence campaigns, and attempted to cause witnesses to make false statements to and withhold information from law enforcement. That's how you get the 10 counts with this guy. He committed all those acts. Now, Elliot Broidy previously pled guilty President Trump pardoned him before leaving office, probably because Brody has been helping with the investigation and cooperating. Higginbotham pleaded guilty in November of 2018. He has yet to be sentenced. And that's a long time. That's five years. Well, going on four and a half years without being sentenced. He probably hasn't been sentenced because he's cooperating too. And so his sentencing is on hold. Lum Davis pleaded guilty for her role in August of 2020. She was sentenced to two years in prison. Lowe has been indicted and is a fugitive. Now, fun fact. We got some more um, indictments from the same day. Um, Here, I'll skip Dawson's comments on it. Same day that Pross was convicted... The Swiss indicted two managers of a Saudi oil company that is tied to the 1MDB scandal and not loosely tied, tied by about $1.8 billion. Point information. All right. A wide ranging investigation. Defendants are accused. These two defendants are accused of embezzlement and laundering $1.8 billion for their own or third party enrichment. According to information, this was done by means of a joint venture between 1MDB and Petro Saudi. The funds were allegedly later converted into an Islamic loan. The offenses occurred from 2009 to 2015. 
The investigation began in 2017, probably after the investigation on the tip off from US DOJ. Now, most likely, it's Tariko Bade and Patrick Mahoney. The Swiss don't name, when someone's charged over there, they keep the name secret for a certain amount of time. So it's not immediately known, but information included with it is um, indicates that it's Tariko Bade and Patrick Mahoney. These two executives appear to be the ones charged last Tuesday. The two men were principal players who conspired with financier Low Tech Joe, or Joe Low, to steal $1.8 billion from 1MDB via a joint venture with Petro Saudi. Between 2010 and 2011, Initially, it was a billion dollars that they offered, but then it be- another eight hundred million was was put in. Much of the money was exposed in twenty fifteen by the Edge and Sarawak report that have gone to Abade Mahoney and the infamous Goodstar bank account at RBS Coots in Zurich that belonged to Joe Lowe. The expose was facilitated by documents given by ex Petro Saudi executive um, Xavier Justo. Now, according to Bloomberg. The pair who were not named by Swiss prosecutors as is practice there until the trial starts were accused of having used the facade of a joint venture and $2.7 billion in assets, which in reality they did not possess, to lure $1 billion in financing from 1MDB. So they faked having $2.7 billion in assets in order to get financing of a billion from 1MDB. The two then opened Swiss bank accounts to receive that money and then used the proceeds to acquire luxury properties in London and Switzerland as well as jewelry and other things. The allegations cover a period from 2009 to 2015 and the duo have been indicted for commercial fraud, aggravated criminal mismanagement, aggravated money laundering. Although 1MDB Petro Saudi joint venture was the first of several fraudulent schemes initiated by Joe Lowe, those involved those involved in that are the last to be indicted. In the last few years, Goldman Sachs and former executive executives like Tim Leisner and Roger Ang have been convicted for large-scale theft of billions of dollars that took place between 2012 and 2013. Former Prime Minister Razak has also been convicted and jailed for one of the cases, and a few other cases are still in court. Joe Lowe is wanted by Malaysia, Singapore, and the U.S. He's believed to be hiding in China. Now, fun fact. Perk up if I bored you with any of those details. Here is a fun fact. The two execs indicted by the Swiss for their role in the 1MDB scandal conspired with Turkey bin Abdullah al-Saud to hide over $1 billion in Swiss bank accounts. Turkey bin Abdullah al-Saud is one of the princes that was rounded up in 2017. He is believed to still be detained. Right there. U.S. DOJ described the scheme in three phases. In August 2009, Najib and Lowe met with representatives of the private oil company Petro Saudi on a yacht in Monaco to discuss 1MDB's first investment. This included Saudi royal Turkey bin Abdullah al-Saud and the Saudi national Tariq Obaid. 
During a subsequent visit to Saudi Arabia, Najib signed a $2.5 billion joint venture between PetroSaudi and OneDB. DOJ later said that this was used as a pretense to move $1 billion into a Swiss bank account. Turkey bin Abdullah al Saud is the seventh son of King Abdullah al- of Saudi Arabia. He served as deputy governor and then governor of Riyadh province from 2013 to January 2015. He was one of 11 princes detained in November 2017. As of June 2021, he is still in detention. And then last month, Roger Ang was sentenced to 10 years for his role. But, you know, nothing's happening. Nothing's happening at all. Now, he hasn't been sentenced yet. Um, He's just been, Pross Michelle's just been convicted. Um, Good morning, EH Kyle. Yeah, he hasn't, um, he hasn't been sentenced. Neither have the other guys. They haven't had a trial yet. We'll see what, we'll see what happens with them. Um, Something, what was it going to hit with Hunter Biden? Oh, yeah. Hunter Biden lawyers to meet with DOJ officials next week. That would be this past week. Hunter Biden should have met with U.S. Attorney Weiss and some DOJ officials and his attorney about his case. At the same time, we have this news from this whistleblower from the IRS who is saying that politics is preventing Hunter from being indicted or is at least blocking somehow, interfering somehow with Weiss's investigation. And then we also had this news the week before that, that ex-Obama staffer um, blow, blew the scheme on a, like blew the whistle on a scheme for kickbacks. There's been a lot of Hunter Biden stuff coming up lately. And then this from Forbes, uh, which I think Maggie sent it to me, or was it Becky? Either Maggie or Becky sent this to me. I appreciate it. Hunter Biden's lawyers met with Justice Department officials on Wednesday of last week to discuss potential charges against the president's son. The meeting comes one day after Biden launched his re-election campaign. Hunter Biden's legal team requested the meeting. Federal prosecutors are reportedly weighing whether to charge Hunter Biden with two misdemeanors for failing to file taxes in 2016 and 2017. One felony of tax evasion and another charge for making a false statement on a questionnaire required um, to purchase a gun. Federal investigators believe in October they had gathered enough evidence to charge the younger Biden in a long-running case and sent their findings to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Delaware. But it's unclear whether prosecutors will charge him. The case is one of several investigations that have developed or enveloped the president's son. On Tuesday, a judge overseeing a paternity dispute involving one of Hunter Biden's children ordered he appear in person before the court next week while congressional Republicans are avidly investigating whether the president influenced his son's business dealings. Hunter Biden is in court today for this, this matter. Um, But the other case goes back to 2018 and 
I feel like there's I feel like there's a uh, non-linear event coming up. Like I feel like we're about to get hit with news that Hunter is an asset and was an unwitting asset at first, but then became a witting asset. And I feel like that first part is about to drop. I feel like there's going to be something in this that reveals to the American public that Hunter was doing work for agencies or a bureau. And I think it's going to be really interesting because I think everybody's going to react. I think everybody's going to have a really big reaction to it. And, uh, it's going to break some people's brains. And I feel like it's really, really close. Now it could come from these taxes. It could be something in these taxes that are like, like reveal that. Um, I think we're really close to that coming out. And I'm excited for it. I might have to take a break from the internet when it happens because people are going to be like freaking out <laughs> and it's going to annoy me, but I'm still going to enjoy it. <laughs> okay. I somehow got through most of what I wanted to present today. Um, I think we're good on the rest. I will say this like AOC Around this Tucker thing, AOC has really put in some good performances lately. Like, I don't know if y'all are paying attention because you probably like, like maybe AOC annoys you. Um, but she's put in some, uh, she's put in some really good performances like this one here. Just a moment. Let me get this. Is this on the right setting yet? I think it is. Okay, hold on just a moment. I got to unmute this. So this is from the day before Tucker was fired, let go, terminated, whatever. Oh, wait, I don't think y'all can hear that. I don't think it's going through to y'all, is it? Um, this. There we go. All right, let's try again. Let's try again. And do you think media organizations or social media platforms should be accountable for the role for, for being platforms for incitement? I believe that when it comes to broadcast television like Fox News, these are subject to to federal law, federal regulation in terms of what's allowed on air and what isn't. And when you look at what Tucker Carlson and some of these other folks on Fox do, it is very, very clearly incitement of violence, very clearly incitement of violence. And that is the line that I think we have to uh, be willing to contend with. I think that AOC got a tip that Tucker was about to be let go. I think I think AOC knew it, and I have good reason for believing that. Tucker is known. 
Tucker's known in D.C. and New York for being a source for other news outlets. And he has to get his info from somewhere. Who? What do you want to bet that AOC is one of Tucker's moles in the house who gives Tucker information about what's going on in Democrat party and in the house. And, um, he uses that information for his show and for some other, and and also he exchanges information with her. So what if, what if she got a tip that he was about to get let go? And so she makes this comment. She also make another, she made another comment that Tucker shouldn't be on the air in this same interview. And, um, if you don't know, if you don't know, if you've never seen this article, you need to know about this article. This is from the New York Times, and it's Ben Smith. So, I mean, we know. We know. It's New York Times. It's Ben Smith. Yeah, 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 yeah. But check this out. Um, what was that first line? There you go. One question you may be asking if you're a New York Times reader is, why are you exchanging text with Tucker Carlson? And if you are a Tucker Carlson viewer... You may be asking, how can the guy who tells you every night the media is lying be texting with the enemy? The answer is one of Washington's open secrets. Mr. Carlson, a proud traitor to the elite political class, spends his time when he's not denouncing liberal media trading gossip with them. He's the go-to guy for sometimes unflattering stories about Donald Trump and for coverage of the internal politics of Fox News, not to mention stories about himself. I won't talk here about any off the record conversations I may have had with him, but 16 other journalists, none of them from the Times, would put my colleagues in a weird position if I had asked them, told me on background that he has been, as three of them put it, a great source. So, 16 other journalists who aren't at the New York Times say they have used Tucker Carlson as a source. Ben Smith is admitting to it, and he says he won't, he hasn't asked anybody else at the Times, but I mean, he's, he's hinting that, yeah, uh, Tucker's a source for other journalists at the Times. So I just wouldn't be surprised if AOC got a tip and then there was... AOC made other comments uh, just the other day with, um, oh, look, there's me. This right here. Check this out. Fox News couldn't have happened to a better guy. Um, What I will say, though, is while I'm very glad that the person that is arguably responsible for the some of the largest driving some of the most uh, amounts of death threats and violent threats, not just in my office. Uh-oh, uh-oh, come back, come back. But to plenty of people across the country. Um, I also kind of feel like I'm like waiting for the cutscene at the end of a Marvel movie after all the credits have rolled. And then you see like the villains like hand reemerge out to grip grip over like the end of a building or something but deplatforming works and it is important and um there you go good things can happen 
So she's like doubling down on this. And I think it's hilarious because deplatforming actually doesn't work. Okay, that's really creepy. Deplatforming doesn't work. Um, it's like there was just like this recent study that showed how it didn't work and wasn't a good tactic. Um, and here she is saying it's great. Like, I don't, I, I just see AOC is a Judas goat. She's an actress in this movie and she says the most craziest things and is wrong on purpose. And it's hilarious to me. It's, it's hilarious to me. Um, those of us who see it are get a kick out of this because she's, she's just leaving. She's leaving the other, like, and if you don't see how this how this works right here with what she's saying, deplatforming works and it's important, she's encouraging more things to happen because it's actually making Tucker stronger. Like getting Tucker away from Fox News is revealing that that Tucker is actually more popular than Fox News itself. And now he's free of Fox News, or at least when his contract, whatever the deals of his his separation are. Um, and then like she's encouraging this to happen to more. So imagine how good it would be for Maria Bartiromo to leave Fox and a number of other, like, it's just good stuff. She it's, it's too perfect. It's a lot, it's a lot easier to enjoy AOC's role in this whole thing once you realize that she's a Judas goat and she's intentionally leading Democrats in the wrong direction. All right. Good to be back, folks. I got to go. I go get my kid and uh, do dad stuff. So um, enjoyed the show today. Hope you guys have a great Monday. Um, it's going to be another crazy week, I am sure. And uh, yeah, let's all... Let's all have a good one. Um, stay positive, friends. God bless each and every one of you. Remember, we're not going to win every battle, but we are going to win this war. And I saw it in comments. Yes, it is true that Hunter and um, Tucker know each other. I believe they were neighbors. Um, I believe that is true. So, I don't know. Maybe there's something to that. Maybe. So, y'all have a good one. I'll see you later.